Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And Dr. Buchwald, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so your book is examining the social construction of three Japanese territorial disputes. Um, and I want to obviously get into the, the, all the details of that. But I wonder if you could tell us how you came to be interested in this project and specifically, you know, with these particular um, islands that, uh, that Japan is involved in territorial disputes about. Uh, uh, thank you very much, Nathan. Uh, and please call me Alex. Uh, I think right. I'm more comfortable with that, if you don't mind. Thank That's you great. so much. Uh, it's great to uh, to be here uh, on this podcast. Uh, yes, so basically, uh, I started, I guess, uh, my PhD uh, research was uh, focused on Japan-Russia relations, focusing mostly on the Japanese side. So uh, I explored the role of national identity, uh, Japan's national identity uh, in Japan's Russia relations. And um, uh, the ter- well, one of the territorial disputes that I examined in this project, it's one of the major uh, stumbling stones in Japan's relations with Russia. So I was doing quite a bit of research on that. Uh, and from there, once I finished with my PhD and I was starting to get interested in Japan-Korea relations, uh, I was uh, studying in uh, studying Korean in Korea in 2006, I think it was, uh, just when the uh, dispute over Dr. Takeshima, 2005 it was, is when it flared up, but uh, the demonstrations were still going on in Korea. Uh, and I was really, really puzzled by this uh, uh, nationwide passion in Korea over these uh, islets, especially when I learned more about them. Uh, so I guess it developed from there. Yeah, this is, I guess, the kind of the uh, the short background for this project. Yeah, that's, and I think it's really interesting that you sort of came to this from the so-called Northern Territories dispute with Russia, um, in part because I think internationally that's probably the least known of the three. Um, and so, okay, so I want to jump into uh, the book itself uh, and starting out with just some stuff that's in the introduction to get us started uh, before we get into the chapters. Um, could you sort of outline the the three disputes with the Northern Territories, uh, as you said, Dokto Takeshima and the uh, Senkaku Diaoyu Islands? Who's involved? What are the disputes? Why should we care? I think a lot of our listeners are familiar, but probably not all. Um, also, if you would be, uh, could talk a little bit about a central contention of yours, um, which is, relates to the role, not of the states, uh, but of the non-state actors that you call national identity entrepreneurs in your book. You could tell us what that means, uh, who, who are these people, and what is their role? And the last thing uh, before we get started, could you talk about the origins of the disputes themselves, right? Because you, you talk about them uh, in the book highlighting the uh, importance of the politics of the Cold War, but also like a sort of shock doctrine of, you know, crisis playing a major role in how these disputes become uh, a part of the national discourse um, and the international politics. 
Uh, all right, Nathan, I'll try to answer the, uh, all of the three questions, which are uh, quite complicated, I guess. Uh, I'll try to, 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 to answer them all in one, uh, one answer. So, uh, we start, I mean, we're talking about basically three territorial disputes. Uh, all of them involve Japan. Uh, so if we start from the north, it's, uh, it's the northern territories or the southern Kurils, as they're known in Russia, uh, which involved uh, Russia, well, these disputes are pretty old. I will uh, get back to this in a second. So uh, today they involve Russia and Japan. Uh, if we go a bit down, well, I guess south and to the um, uh, to the uh, west, uh, it's uh, it's um, uh, the dispute of a doctor Takeshima. Uh, between uh, Japan and uh, South Korea. We're talking about tiny rocks here. Uh, in the case of Northern Territory, sorry, I forgot to mention this, uh, we're talking about four islands, uh, two of them quite big, uh, with 18,000 people living there. Uh, and if we go further, further, further south, uh, we're talking about the disputes uh, between uh, Japan, uh, China, and Taiwan over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. So these are eight islands. Uh, today, nobody lives there. They're not uh, inhibited, but they, I mean, they, they are definitely bigger than Dr. Takeshima. I mean, the overall territory, which are tiny rocks. Though they do have the, I mean, Dr. Takeshima, they have uh, about 60 Korean Coast Guard stationed there permanently. Uh, and until recently, uh, Dr. Takeshima also had a Korean fisherman and his wife living there. Uh, the fisherman passed away uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, and uh, I think the Korean government is still in the process of finding uh, somebody to uh, to replace him. So um, the so these are the three disputes we're talking about. Uh, the disputes that I discuss in the book. Um, when it comes to the origins of these disputes, uh, what I'm doing in this book is I differentiate between the disputes themselves and the social construction of these disputes. So the, the disputes themselves, uh, there have been quite a lot of works published on, on, on the history of the disputes, the state-to-state uh, -state negotiations of the disputes. Uh, and I think uh, most of the uh, scholars agree that the disputes originated in the uh, politics of the Cold War, uh, or more precisely in the San Francisco Peace Treaty. In the case of uh, Senkaku Diaoyu, we can also talk about the agreement uh, on reversion of Okinawa to Japan sign, uh, between Japan and the United States, uh, signed in 1971. Uh, what... Uh, the uh, what do the politics of Cold War have to do with this? Uh, if you look at the San Francisco Peace Treaty, if we look at the article that deals with Japan with Japan's borders, this was a treaty that was supposed to delimitate Japan, uh, the borders of post-war uh, Japan, and uh, all of the references. I mean, the article is very uh, is very brief, uh, and there are no specific uh, in, and very vague at the same time, and that's why basically it leaves room for a lot for different uh, interpretations. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons, and I think, well, sorry, the reason, the main, the main reason for this ambiguity that has been raised by a few scholars uh, and probably uh, uh, Professor uh, Kimihara uh, is one of the most uh, well-known. Um, 
scholars that have worked on, on, on San Francisco Peace Treaty and this series of disputes is that it was very much in the interest of the United States in the context of the Cold War uh, to, leave this, uh, to leave this ambiguity and this potential for certain frictions between Japan and its neighbors. I will not go into detail into further detail because uh, I, those listeners that are interested, they're most welcome to look up uh, Professor Hara's book uh, on the San Francisco Peace Treaty. It's all there, uh, very well written and very interesting. Uh, but my interest is the social construction. So basically, uh, I guess those familiar with the constructivist school of international relations would know what I mean about uh, what I mean by social construction. Uh, those that don't basically, uh, well, in a kind of simplified way, talking about this perception, uh, widely spread perception regarding the importance of these uh, of these territories uh, for bilateral relations among not only the policymakers but also among the general public. Uh, in the construction of this uh, territory of or the social construction of these territorial disputes uh, is a somewhat different process from the disputes themselves, or this is at least the way I see them. Uh, so, for example, let me give you an example. I'm just currently, I'm reading a book on uh, Japan-Korea uh, Japan relations, published, published by prominent Korean, well, US-based Korean scholar. Uh, the book was written, published in uh, 1985. A very well-written book, very well balanced, very well-researched, but it's not mentioning this uh, Dr. Takeshima dispute at all. Uh, and this is not simply uh, this is not a negligence on behalf of the of the scholar that wrote this book, but this is simply because this dispute was not seen as significant uh, then uh, by people in both Japan and uh, people scholars uh, policymakers in both Japan and Korea. So, uh, so I'm looking. So, so, so my interest is uh, in the social construction. Basically, how this idea that this territory, this disputed territory, is so important uh, for the nation. How did it emerge, and how it gained such a prominence, such a widespread in the society? So, this is this is what my book, uh, my work, is interested in. Uh, and as you pointed out, I'm looking specifically uh, at uh, uh, actors. These could be individuals, groups. Uh, in uh, well, at least in one case, it's a uh, well a prefectural assembly. Uh, in the case of Takeshima in Japan, uh, actors that basically initiate this kind of debate uh, and they appeal to the nation. They frame this uh, this dispute in terms of its national importance, importance to the nation. Uh, and these are the actors that I refer to as uh, national identity entrepreneurs. Another, uh, I think, uh, uh, point that you mentioned is that uh, my argument is, is that this kind of uh, activism uh, by this uh, national identity entrepreneurs uh, tends to emerge during uh, what I call critical junctures. Uh, so basically, these are uh, times of crisis, times of certain social, economic, or political upheaval in the nation, uh, which uh, give rise these and these uh, critical junctures. Uh, usually, they have nothing to do with the uh, disputes uh, in question, uh, but uh, 
because of uh, the way they impact the society, uh, they give, uh, they enable the emergence of uh, these kind of uh, actors, these national identity entrepreneurs, who then uh, use these territor- this disputed territories as a rhetorical tool, as a framing instrument uh, in making a certain claim, in uh, uh, in appealing to uh, to the people, uh, to the state. Um, yeah, that's about. I, I think I'll stop here for now. Okay, great. Yeah, that's that's really helpful, uh, and thank you for uh, in dealing with all those questions tossed at you at once. I, I thought it was very uh, helpful for for me, uh, even you know having read the book to uh, hear that anecdote about the 1985 book that you're reading because it just does highlight um, how some of these things are of such you know sort of. That they're that they are a product of a particular time, right? That they're um, and, and even though they're not, they're often not treated that way. Um, you also you talked in your answer. You you began to to uh, sort of stake out your position within um, international the field of international relations. I wonder if there's anything else that specifically that you'd like to say about that, about sort of the way you frame your project within that field and stake out your own territory, so to speak. Yes. Uh, so uh, I. Would locate my uh, my research within the constructivist school of international relations, uh, and in a nutshell, constructivist school of international relations basically uh, argues that states' actions, uh, or, uh, they obviously deriv- derivative of, of uh, states' interests, uh, but these interests are not a given. These interests are shaped by uh, shaped by national identities. So, in specific time, in specific, depending on, on time, depending on the country, uh, these uh, identities shape interests in a certain way, and from these interests, certain policies evolve. Uh, so, my intervention is is well, I guess it's twofold. One uh, is that uh, basically my argument is this: identities are there, and there are a lot of there there there, there are plenty of some. Some good, some not so good works on uh, uh, identity and uh, international rela- and foreign policies in East Asia of Japan of Korea, uh, but quite often these identities or these identities are treated as monolithical, as something that uh, emerges as a whole or exists as a whole. Um, and my argument is that these identities, these discourses of identity, are made of specific narratives. Uh, in the case of, obviously, uh, in the case of territorial disputes, these are narratives about these uh, disputed territories. And these narratives, they activated by certain actors, very specific actors, at a certain time, uh, time in, in history uh, for specific reasons. And in order to understand how actually national identities uh, that in turn shape uh, policy uh, interest and policies. Uh, how these identities emerge, how they created, how certain discourses are sustained, uh, recreated. Uh, we need to understand. We need to understand how these specific narratives that can be seen as building blocks of this uh, broader national identity constructs, how they emerge uh, and uh, how they. Uh, w- and how they became become diffused in the society? How do they reach this, you know, this uh, uh, status of being part of uh, this level of becoming part of uh, of national identity? Uh, so this is this is one point uh, focusing on specific narratives and uh, uh, the uh, 
basically looking at the at, at process rather than in a, at a, a final outcome of national identity, for, uh, looking at the process of how it is uh, constructed, how it is created. Uh, another point is uh, that in international relations, uh, quite often, I mean, again, I'm referring to uh, the constructivist school, when uh, scholars when scholars talk about national identity, they tend to uh, they tend to um, conflate the nation and the state. So basically, when they look for evidence of national identity, quite often they would look at uh, some governmental documents, uh, statements made by politicians. They will also look at some uh, writings by, uh, well, I guess nationalistic uh, scholars. Uh, public opinion leaders, etc. So the nation and the state is basically seen very much as one in the scholarship. And what I'm trying to argue here, uh, again, by focusing on those uh, national identity entrepreneurs that uh, I uh, talked about just uh, just before, is to argue that this the, comp- the, the process of national identity construction is much more complex. Quite often, it's contentious. Basically, it's this contention between this national identity entrepreneurs and the state uh, through which national identities uh, emerge. So, it's, it's, uh, so we need to uh, differentiate between the state and uh, those people that see themselves as representing the nation. Uh, I'm not arguing that this is true for all cases, but at least for the cases that I'm looking at, um, looking at here. Uh, so these are two points, and also, uh, I mean, if we maybe not so much as a, uh, as a broad international relations uh, uh, scholarship, but specifically scholarship that focuses on territorial disputes uh, in international relations, but also, I guess, uh, maybe history. Um, there's um, there's a certain, um, I think, uh, state centrism. So basically, when uh, people talk about the territorial disputes, the focus is mostly on the state. Uh, and what I'm trying to show here is I'm trying to move away from the state. So the state centrism. I'm trying to look at other actors, uh, non-state actors. Again, these are those identity entrepreneurs. Uh, and explore their role in the construction, in this complex process uh, of construction of these narratives and uh, national identities. Yeah, thank you. That's extremely helpful and very clear. And I think it's it also for me was, you know, those interventions, even though I'm looking at the book from the field of history, uh, were you know, particularly uh, poignant because a lot of what we've sort of, you know, the, the way that thinking about uh, Japanese the history of Japanese empire, uh, for example, has evolved in, in in somewhat the same way, right? From thinking about it as this sort of you know, top-down state-led process to really thinking about the ways that these, you know, uh, non-state bottom-up actors are creating foment in some places. And of course, you know, there's lots of case by case that goes with this, but the sort of shift in focus uh, is something that I recognized from my own discipline as well. And was very helpful for me uh, in sort of seeing how your, your book is put together. Um, so I want to jump into that, into the, the, the heart of the book, which is the chapter. So the first one, uh, chapter one is Japan's Northern Territories. And as I said uh, in the intro, I think, I mean, the, the, the dispute with Russia is probably internationally the least well-known of Japan's territorial disputes uh, over the so-called Northern Islands. Um, and those are the islands that were occupied by the Soviet Union at the end of World War II. Um, in your chapter, you highlight the role of uh, the mayor, 
uh, Ando Ishisuke, uh, the mayor of Nemuro in Hokkaido, uh, as one of these entrepreneurs. Uh, and you show how uh, what the very imaginatively named Commission for Entreating the for entreating the return of islands attached to Hokkaido, uh, which uh, Ando created, began drafting uh, petitions to the to the U.S. occupation almost immediately after Japan's surrender. Um, so, can you tell us about about that, the sort of you know long history of this throughout the post-war, uh, about why Nemuro and you know how Ando becomes the sort of you know entrepreneur uh, you know par excellence here, um, and about how the issue has um, evolved over the 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 uh, interceding decades. Um, I, I'm actually, I'm particularly interested in uh, the sort of relevance of another uh, national identity entrepreneur, the Nemuro area uh, Peace Preservation and Revival Alliance uh, under a guy named Toachi Mamoru um, and how he shifts the focus uh, from territorial uh, and ec to economic rights um, and how, how that sort of plays out and it becomes a uh there becomes tension between the prefectural and national governments um and as you point out there is this significant tension between uh hokkaido and tokyo about this um so how does that all play out from uh, across the post-war okay well thank you nathan it's uh it's a very complex uh issue i think um i think the dispute between the territorial dispute between uh, japan and russia is uh, the least known today, or let's put it this way, it's the least one that's in the news these days uh, because there's not much happening there, actually, uh, uh, which is probably good. Um, but um, I guess from Japan's perspective, well, it's it's a difficult question whether that's... Uh, in terms of territory, this is uh, this is basically, we're talking about the largest territory. These uh, northern territories are the only, uh, the only islands that actually have a permanent population, and in the case of uh, in the case of the Northern Territories, we're talking about at least, uh, I think these days, it's about 18,000, 19,000 uh, people, Russians, Russian citizen, uh, citizens residing there, uh, fisheries, uh, timber, uh, potential for some gas and oil, so it's uh, in terms of resources. So we're talking about a relatively, again, relatively significant um, territory here um especially compared to the either uh, to the other um uh, the other groups of islands uh but uh, nemuro is uh, definitely nemuro is considered as uh the birthplace of the of the movement for the return of northern territories uh and the reason for this is that uh it's quite simple because nemuro had the uh uh had the most um important uh uh, economic connection uh, with uh, the disputed islands before they became disputed. They were uh, under Japan's uh, jurisdiction until uh, until the Soviet uh, uh, occupation uh, in um, late August, early September 1945. Um, so uh, Nemuro is uh, basically you had people uh, uh, people who uh, uh, owned uh, certain property on those islands. Uh, people who had relatives on those islands, so there was a very, a very strong economic connection between Nemuro uh, and and if the listeners would like to have a look on the map uh, uh, of Japan and uh, its position, Nemuro's position, uh, they will see that basically it's very, very close. You can see, I think, the closest uh, island. Well, in a group of the within this group of the disputed islands is probably about three kilometers from Nemuro. So on a clear day, you can actually see it. So you can see uh, Russia from Nemuro. Um, 
So uh, Nemro is actually, so this is where most of the expelled, the Soviet Union, where after occupying the islands, basically expelled all of the Japanese residents. There were about 15,000, 16,000 Japanese uh, living there uh, at that point. So, so uh, many of them, quite a few, I think about 10,000 of them, I don't have the exact figures now, uh, settled in Nemro. Uh, and also because of the economic importance of Nemro, uh, of uh, these islands for Nemro, uh, it's not only the islands themselves, it's also the waters where uh, Nemro's uh, economy has been focused on fisheries. And this is where um, this is where Nemro uh, fishermen were uh, conducting their fishing activities. So uh, this is, I think, the, the main reason, basically economic connection, uh, economic and people connection to uh, to this islands. This is why uh, this is why uh, this movement is started in uh, Nemro. Uh, and uh, yes, you're absolutely right. I'm basically I'm focusing. There are many groups, many small groups that appeared and disappeared, but. Uh, uh, one of the groups, uh, I mean, both of the groups that you mentioned, these two groups are the main focus of of uh, of this chapter, um, and uh, one of the groups was established by Andrei Shiske, who was the mayor of Nemrod at that time. Uh, I think, I mean, it's not completely clear. It's hard. Uh, there is certain archival material. Uh, there's certain um, documents left by uh, these groups. Uh, and memoirs that I was uh, able to work with, it's not completely clear the uh, you know the the motives for his uh, activism, uh, but uh, obviously uh, he was positioning himself as a champion of the nation and the champion of Nemro, uh, but he also had certain personal interests uh, there. I mean, he was running uh, a farm and I think a crab cannery on one of the islands, so uh, there was some personal uh, interest in it. Also, because he was the mayor of Nemro, and we, we're talking about Japan in early, well, mid-1940s, uh, 1945 uh, till about 1950, 56, this is when, the, uh, when this group uh, was active. Uh, so we're talking about uh, pretty uh, high economic conditions. Uh, and we have the addition of those expelled residents uh, who settled there. So, uh, I mean, the main reason has been, I guess, there was some personal interest, but also economic hardship for the town. Another group which was established uh, in early 1950s, uh, which was uh, also in Nemoro, uh, it was quite different. Well, quite interesting, I think, the contrast between the two groups. Uh, it was established by Togashi Mamoru, who was, uh, if Ando was very much um, a typical pre-1945 Japanese local politician, quite conservative. Um, uh, Togashi Mamoru was, uh, he, was also, he, he was also a local politician, but he was basically on the left. He was uh, at a certain time member of the Socialist Party, so he had close connections with the Socialist Party. He was more of a union uh, activist turned politician. Uh, and uh, if the first group, uh, Anders' group, was basically uh, framing the argument in terms of uh, these are, you know, our and her territories developed, so very quite strongly nationalistic, developed by, you know, blood and, uh, and tears of our forefathers. 
the group established by uh, uh, by uh, Togashi uh, was um, uh, and their argument. I mean, in both cases, I think the main motive, the main uh, motivation for the activism was uh, improving the livelihoods of people of Nemro. But uh, for Togashi, basically, he was framing the argument uh, or framing his position simply, uh, purely in economic terms. Basically, his argument was we need to do uh, everything we can uh, to, uh, to basically to alleviate the, um, the, um, the economic conditions of people of Nemro. And he was urging the government uh, to adopt a flexible position on the territories, uh, on the return of the territories. On the scope of the territories, uh, as long as uh, the people of well Japan, but by default also the people of Nemro will be able to trade uh, with the Soviet Union and China, uh, and they will be able to engage in uh, fishing activities in, uh, in those waters around the um, the disputed islands. Uh, we also have another quite important actor here. This is the Hokkaido Prefecture, Hokkaido Prefectural uh, Governor, uh, Tanaka, who was uh, a socialist, uh, member of the Socialist Party. Uh, and he he is basically, uh, the way I uh, interpret his interest in this, uh, I mean, he was basically leading the prefecture's uh, uh, engagement with this dispute. Uh, I think that for Tanaka Toshifumi was um, it had very much to do with the conflicts he was engaged with Tokyo, with the central government at the time. Uh, basically, Tanaka was one of the few socialist governors of Japanese prefectures, and the government, the central government, uh, in. Uh, at that time, is obviously the held of the conservatives, what will eventually become the LDP. Um, so the conservatives they want to establish uh, Hokkaido Development Agency, which was, which would become uh, somewhat of a parallel uh, kind of uh, uh, agent of governance, uh, basically wrestling some of the authority and uh, obviously finance away from the prefecture, Hokkaido Prefecture. Uh, and obviously Tanaka is opposing, is uh, very strongly opposing this kind of development, very critical of this. Uh, so uh, the way I interpret this, and again, there are some, this is very much an in, in interpretivist argument. I wouldn't say that um, uh, I couldn't find any evidence uh, where Tanaka would explicitly say that this is what motivated him to um, embrace this, uh, you know, the, the northern well, Northern Territories goes. Uh, but uh, I think there's enough evidence which I uh, bring up in the book uh, which shows that this could have been the case, um, that my interpretation is not too far-fetched. Uh, basically, he's using the dispute to criticize the government. He's using the dispute to criticize the government's policies, he's using the dispute to criticize to say the government is giving away uh, those islands. So he's using uh, this, uh, this, these, these territories to criticize and to, uh, to enhance his legitimacy uh, in Hokkaido, but also probably uh, uh, in Japan. I mean... Uh, he he conducted uh, a few uh, demonstrations, a few protests. Uh, he participated, organized a few protests in Tokyo. So he was trying at least to bring this, uh, you know, uh, this dispute to Tokyo and to appeal uh, to the people in Tokyo. Um, uh, though I mean I can't say that he was very successful in that. 
Uh, and uh, the government initially pays uh, doesn't pay much attention to this uh, to these territories uh, to this dispute between between it and uh, uh, in and uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, obviously, doesn't pay uh, much attention to these groups. These groups are small. Uh, doesn't pay much attention to Hokkaido Prefecture as well. Uh, uh, in uh, 55, 56, uh, Japan and the Soviet Union they conduct um, they try to. Negotiate a peace treaty, they fail. Uh, but from then onwards, I mean, there's only just a joint statement. Uh, but um, but the government is not that much interested in these uh, in these territories uh, overall. It's only from late night, and most of these groups, I mean, the groups, uh, the certain groups of former residents that continue to exist, the two groups that I, uh, uh, activist groups that I just talked about, uh, now they cease to exist uh, after the, well, just before or after the uh, uh, Soviet-Japan uh, negotiations in 1955-56. Uh, there are obviously few groups of uh, former residents and continue to exist. Uh, from 1960s, late 1960s, the government starts to pay quite an increasing, uh, an increasing uh, attention to this dispute. Uh, embarks on a f- fully fledged uh, domestic campaign, uh, posters, certain facilities, educational so-called enlightenment campaign towards the citizens about this. Uh, territory occupied by the Soviet Union, uh, uh, arguing for the need for all the people to unite to work together towards uh, towards their return. Uh, and why the question is obviously why from late 1960s and early 1970s the government suddenly becomes so interested in these uh, these islands. Um, and uh, the argument, the, the argument I'm making here, that it has to do with the return of Okinawa. Uh, basically, from 1969 till 71, the uh, the government uh, negotiates the return of Okinawa, uh, which is uh, by the at that time occupied by uh, the United States. Uh, but Okinawa, Okinawa returns with American bases. Uh, and this is something that is uh, criticized by the socialist opposition, heavily criticized. Uh, and um, the argument I'm trying to make here is that the government uh, decided or shifted its attention to northern territories and embarked on this excessive campaign is basically uh, had very, uh, well, cynical, I guess, uh, political cal- calculations aimed at diverting people's attention from Okinawa towards the north, towards the Soviet Union, which is obviously Japan's enemy anyway uh, in the Cold War. Uh, so, uh, And at the same time, uh, as, as part of the process uh, as, uh, in, in this campaign, the government also co-opts some of the groups, uh, the existing groups of former residents, and it also adopts some of the strategies and some of the arguments made by the activists uh, in uh, late 1940s, 1950s. So uh, in this case, basically, uh, we see that the uh, narrative uh, about Northern Territories was mostly created by the central government. Uh, so the role of of this uh, national identity entrepreneurs was uh, rather limited, but 
At the same time, I'm arguing that uh, the government has adopted uh, quite a few of the strategies and the arguments, so we cannot uh, disregard the role here completely. Yeah, um, thank you for sort of unpacking that because it's a very it's a very complicated story, right? With all these different vectors, uh, you know, the you have the prefectural government, you have the social, you know, local socialists, and yeah. Um, so that was that's very helpful to sort of see it that way. And it's also interesting how it contrasts, um, and yet there's some interesting parallels with what's happening in chapter two, which is uh, Shimane Prefecture's quest for Takeshima. Um, and that's about the Dokto Takeshima dispute. Um, and uh, a, a good deal of the chapter is looking at the prehistory of uh, Takeshima Day, which was declared by Shimane in 2005. Um, so you show that the prefecture's interests in these, you know, basically barren islands uh, had little to do with territory um, and a lot to do with economics. And so that has obviously some parallels with uh, the Northern Territories. Uh, but that's early on, and that eventually Shimane Prefecture turned into a national identity entrepreneur with national territory uh, being sort of leveraged as a symbol, again, of injustice inflicted upon the prefecture by Tokyo. Um, and along the way, you talk about some fascinating parallels with the Northern Territories issues, which I hope you'll bring up, um, and point out the sort of critical juncture in the early 2000s uh, with the Koizumi administration and its reforms which create the immediate sort of proximal conditions for Takeshima Day. So uh, tell us about that and about the fallout from that 2005 decision. Uh, thank you, Nathan. So uh, Takeshima, if we look uh, very briefly at the history, and I will refer to Takeshima here because this is the Japanese name uh, of this uh, of this two rocks, uh, this islet, so the Korean name is Dokto. Um, if you look brief, very briefly at the history, basically Takeshima was incorporated into Shimane Prefecture uh, uh, in uh, 1905. Uh, and uh, today, uh, the Korean position argues that uh, Takeshima's incorporation was the first step uh, in Japan's colonization of the whole of peninsula. Uh, and the Korean and the Japanese position is that this had nothing to do uh, with, this was uh, a confirmation of previous position. Uh, which, and had nothing to do with uh, had nothing to do with the um, colonization of the Korean Peninsula. So um, again, the history is quite complex, uh, but basically, uh, and I will not, I will try to avoid like uh, all the uh, all the details here. The lots of uh, dates and 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 names uh, involved, but basically, uh, from the early post-war years, uh, Shimane Prefecture lobbies the central government to uh, do something about Takeshima because Takeshima, uh, firstly, uh, is uh, it's, it's placed uh, outside of the so-called MacArthur line. So the Japanese uh, fishermen, Japanese are prevented from going there. And uh, just when the, uh, when the San Francisco Peace Treaty is about to come into effect, the Koreans basically, uh, well, uh, established control, de facto control over the over these uh, islands, and since then, so since 1951, 52, uh, these uh, islands have been under Korean control, de facto control, de facto administration. So Shimane Prefecture lobbies the government to establish control uh, over these uh, over these two islands, uh, two two rocks, uh, and Japan's the, the the government's position is identical. 
the government is lobbying, also is lobbying the Americans uh, uh, in the uh, uh, during the negotiations of the San Francisco Peace Treaty. So the prefecture and the government, uh, basically, they are on the, they they share the same position. Uh, this changes after 1965, after Japan Korea, uh, after Japan and Korea sign a normalization treaty, peace treaty, you can call it as well. Uh, in which uh, both sides decide to uh, shelve the dispute. They decide to shelve the dispute uh, for a variety of, uh, of reasons, mostly related to domestic politics in both countries. But from 1965 onwards, basically, the Japanese government is not paying any attention uh, to these uh, to Takeshima. It's not paying. It's it's hardly appearing in any policy documents. Occasionally, you hear. Uh, certain politicians make certain statements, but overall, the government's basically ignoring this issue, uh, and this is this is probably the uh, the main reason. And the issue is not playing any important role in bilateral relations as well. The the Japan and Korea they have a, a fisheries treaty which is signed also in 1965, which basically enables more or less. Uh, more or less with certain hiccups here and there, but overall, uh, generally smooth. Uh, fish, uh, f- fishing activities uh, by fishermen from both sides. So from 1965, basically, Shimane continues to argue for establishing, uh, you know, uh, basically, it, at least on this point, it's in opposition to the government. It, it continues demanding from the government uh, to um, to uh, do something about this, basically, to establish Japan's territorial rights over these islands. Uh, why is Shiman is so preoccupied? I wouldn't call it preoccupied. The issue also is does not, it's not playing, I wouldn't say it's, it has been playing a central uh, role on the prefectural agenda, uh, but Shimane Prefecture, uh, every year in its annual appeals to the government, it uh, demands the establishment of the territorial rights uh, to Takeshima. Uh, and the reason for this, I argue, is has to do a lot with northern territories, uh, not the dispute itself, but the governmental campaign, uh, northern territory uh, or domestic campaign related to northern territories. So basically, the government, uh, as uh, we just uh, saw in the previous chapter, the government uh, embarks on this extensive campaign. Uh, lots of money are uh, being spent on. Uh, and Shimane, uh, which basically has its claims to Takeshima, is not get anything. Is not getting anything, though. Uh, formally, a government's position on both of the disputes is identical. Um, so I'm arguing that gradually the question of um, Takeshima becomes uh, an issue of well identity or injustice for Shimane Prefecture. This, this basically this kind of injustice inflicted upon it by the central government. And uh, there are quite a few uh, developments uh, in late 1980s, uh, 1990s, when the two governments have to renegotiate the fisheries treaty. But uh, I guess the most important point, especially if we think about uh, the central role the dispute is playing in uh, Japan-Korea relations today, is the 2005 uh, Takeshima Day Ordinance uh, adopted by Shimane Prefecture. And um, quite often, uh, 
I mean, certain certain analysts, certain pundits, especially in Korea, have argued that this was basically done uh, on behalf of the central government. But actually, if we look at documents and if we look at what has been happening between the central government, between Tokyo and Shimane Prefecture uh, uh, in months preceding the ordinance, we see that the government is trying to put pressure on Shimane Prefecture not to pass this ordinance. So the government is not happy with it. The government is trying to, well, certain uh, take certain uh, steps to uh, to prevent it, but it fails. Obviously, it fails. So why? So what's happening? So why is Shimane Prefecture? Uh, so why why this issue reignites in Shimane Prefecture uh, in uh, early two thousand? It's reignited in uh, Shimane Prefecture in the late two thousands. And this is the main uh, one of the questions I'm trying to answer here. And my answer is that yes, uh, obviously the kind of there was some tensions building up in Japan in bilateral state-to-state relations leading to this uh, over uh, Takeshima. But probably the most important factor here is Koizumi reforms. This is the critical juncture that I emphasize here. So what is it about the Koizumi reforms? And again, if we look at Koizumi reforms, basically we'll look at this um, attempt to, um, quite a few of the so-called Trinity reforms, are basically looking at, uh, well, privatization of postal office, but also uh, trying to decrease the prefecture's dependence on central government. Uh, so more autonomy for uh, more autonomy for prefectures, but also less budget, uh, less allocations, monetary allocations to them uh, from the center, from Tokyo. And Shimane Prefecture is one of the poor. It has been one of the poorest prefectures uh, in Japan all the way throughout the post-war years. Uh, quite heavily dependent on uh, those on this uh, basically those budgetary allocations for its own budget. So, um, looking at the debates inside uh, inside Shimane Prefecture among the uh, uh, the um, uh, the local uh, assembly uh, lawmakers, uh, basically, I'm arguing that it was very much a response to Koizumi, uh, this Ko- reforms initiated by, by Koizumi, very much uh, uh, which enhanced the sense of injustice. Uh, among Shimane, Prefe- Shimane Prefecture's elites. Uh, this was very much, the uh, ordinance was very much a kind of a revolt against the central government. Um, and uh, it was also at the same time, it was a revolt against Koizumi reforms, but it was also uh, in a somewhat ironical fashion, I guess, uh, enabled by Koizumi reforms. Why? Because if we look at the composition of the prefectural assembly uh, in 2004, 2005, and probably even today, uh, it's mostly LDP. So basically, we see local uh, prefectural level LDP uh, members rebelling against uh, LDP-led government. And how is this possible? Uh, And my argument here is that Koizumi reforms, basically, they created... uh, because Koizumi went out against the dominant fraction inside the LDP, there was quite a bit of uh, uh, different struggles and uh, inside the, LD- the LDP during that time. And I'm arguing that basically it's crisis managing- management mechanism that would have possibly would have prevented uh, the emergence of this kind of ordinance uh, in different times, just failed to function. 
so this is more or less the argument I'm making about uh, the road to Takeshima Day in Japan. Yeah, that's really uh, what was one of the things that was really fascinating to me was that uh, internal dispute within the ruling Liberal Democratic Party between, uh, you know, it's one thing when in Hokkaido you have a, a socialist governor who's uh, you know putting the the prefecture in tension with the central government, which is ruled by the uh, conservative party, which calls itself the LDP. The LDP you know. uh, but it's quite another thing when you know, in Shimane, you have an internal LDP sort of internecine dispute here. Um, so I found that rather fascinating. Um, in chapter three, you're taking on the other side of this issue, uh, not the Takeshima side, but the Dokto uh, side in a chapter called the Protect Dokto Movement in South Korea. Um, and you argue that the early campaigns to uh, the Protect Doctor campaigns drew on what you call counter-hegemonic historical narrative and an alternative national identity construct centered on a concept of the people or Minjong as sort of an anti-elite. Um, and though the movement initially solidifies around a response to uh, threats to Korean South Korean national identity uh, posed by the sort of critical juncture in the late 1990s, that's the IMF crisis. Um, since 2005, the Protect Doctor movement has uh, been partially co-opted by the government. Um, and I just it sort of to add to this, I mean, you 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 make the fascinating point that even though the uh, provincial government of North Gyeongsang was heavily involved, uh, as you put it, in the production and reproduction of the Dokdo is our land construct, its role is quite different from that of Shimane. So, uh, and this chapter has a really rich cast of national identity entrepreneurs. It'd be great if you could maybe reference one or two of them um, as you sort of lay out this story for us. Um. Yes, uh, thank you, Nathan. I think if we look at if we look at uh, the doctor narrative uh, uh, today in uh, South Korea, uh, the government is definitely one of the main, if not the main, actors that engage in in its production and reproduction. You can see campaigns on trains, posters everywhere, uh, pamphlets being published in different languages about how doctor is uh, Korea's uh, Korea's land and about Japan's uh, unlawful, um, uh, preposterous claims to it. Uh, but if we look at the history of this, uh, of this, of the movement uh, to protect Doctor, uh, what we find there is basically again we find those uh, basically activists who are uh, initially emerge as, as critics of the government and basically the whole. Uh, the whole movement is equally critical of the Korean government as it is of Japan's claims to uh, to the islands. So, uh, what I'm trying to do in this uh, in this um, in this chapter is basically to look at the origins of this movement and trying to analyze how this movement emerged uh, and what uh, what what I uh, to in to understand the claims that it was making, why did it uh, emerge in mid nineteen, uh, well, a bit late, a bit earlier probably, but it started to became kind of a mass movement in um, late nineteen nineties. Um, so this is my my main uh, goal in this chapter, and uh, my argument, in a nutshell, I guess, uh, in one sentence, uh, my argument is that the 
the movement to protect doctor was very much uh, a continuation of the democrat of the pro democracy movement uh, of 1970s and 1980s so how the two movements uh, related so first of all they very simply i mean we have uh, we see very much uh, same people uh, the actors so if we look at the leaders of the um, of the uh, of the um, uh, of the protect doctor movement we can see that uh, they uh, uh, many of them were very active in the students uh, in the pro democracy movement uh, in uh, in 1980s uh, in, in 1980s Korea uh, and one of the uh, one of these uh, people that uh, I uh, interviewed for this book one of the leaders of one of the groups which exists until the present day uh, in a much smaller form though uh, he was uh, Mr. Che Cheik he was a student activist back in the 80s he was uh, a socialist uh, he uh, calls himself these days a national socialist uh, which uh, I don't think a nationalist socialist I'm sorry nationalist socialist uh, I don't think he's making any references there to national social national socialist party in uh, in uh, Germany uh, in uh, 19 30s uh, but uh, he um, he's quite uh, I think he's quite an even well he's quite an interesting character basically uh, he looks after a kindergarten which is uh, owned by his uh, by his wife and uh, he is driving the kids back and forth uh, from home to uh, to the kindergarten uh, but he sees his main job his main kind of uh, 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 main occupation as a uh, doctor protector. Uh, well, student activists uh, back in the 80s, as I mentioned, uh, did a master's degree uh, at one of Korea's uh, uh, you know, leading universities. Then he worked as a, as a newspaper uh, reporter for a while. But I think basically uh, uh, my understanding is that um, was running a cram school for a while. He became victim of the of the so-called IMF crisis, which I'll talk about uh, uh, soon in in nineteen seventy seven uh, ninety sorry nineteen ninety seven ninety eight, and since then he has devoted himself to this movement. Um, so, uh, in terms of his ideas, also uh, we see a lot of parallels with the democratization movement. Um, and what exactly, uh, what exactly, so what are the parallels that I'm talking about here? Um, we need to understand basically this, um, uh, <coughs> sorry, we need to understand the, uh, what kind of national identity vision the democratization movement has had for, uh, has had for, uh, for Korea. Uh, the democratic opposition in the 1980s. So it was very, um, very uh, focused on, very ethnically focused, so basically very um, focused uh, very much on the ethnicity, on the ethnic nation. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, it's also uh, one of its main tenets was this dichotomy between the people and the elites. So it's so not dissimilar, um, so basically the oppressed versus the oppressor. Um, not dissimilar to this multitude and empire uh, distinction dichotomy made by Hart and Negri in their uh, much uh, more recent work. But uh, basically, who are the people? Who are the elites? The elites are those that oppress the nation. Uh, they 
they conspired together with outside forces, uh, Japan and the United States in this case. Uh, the people are being exploited, the people are being duped, uh, and uh, basically they look at the nation also as uh, the ethnic nation that uh, uh, spreads uh, through the whole of Korean Peninsula. So basically they think that the argument is the democratization, basically getting rid of those corrupt elites that oppress uh, uh, oppress the people will bring uh, national unification as well. So for them, democratization and unification. So they, they're quite Marxist. They said that the very strong influence of uh, Marxism or probably more uh, like Latin American Marxism, uh, the dependency theory kind of Marxism uh, on their thought. Uh, but basically their vision is that democratization will bring unification uh, and all this will read, lead to the establishment of Korean subjectivity as an independent uh, and autonomous nation, uh, and uh, the, the 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 democratic movement actually win wins. They defeat uh, they defeat uh, well. Uh, uh, Chondoan, uh, Korea has a new so the the, the student protests in 1987. They bring eventually to the new constitution, um, but in a somewhat again. Uh, Quite ironically, uh, they win uh, in terms of the political struggle, but their vision of national identity for newly democratic uh, Korea uh, collapses completely as well. Why? So, well, first of all, 1990s, we, we see the collapse of, uh, of communism. So overall, this kind of leftist ideas uh, globally, but also obviously in Korea, uh, they lose uh, their... To a certain extent, I guess, uh, lose their legitimacy, lose their appeal. Uh, Korea is democratized, but unification is uh, as distant as it was before, though there are certain movements, but obviously Korea is not unified, and their prospects of unification are still quite dim in the 1990s. Uh, the new democratic governments, uh, successive uh, governments in Korea, they continue to maintain close relations with the United States. And I think probably the kind of the key moment here is the 1997 uh, uh, financial crisis, which is called in Korea the IMF crisis, uh, because Korea had to uh, get bailed by the IMF. Uh, but basically, uh, besides the law, the, I mean, the horrible uh, consequences the crisis had for the for Korean society and economy, basically, it just highlights for the Koreans uh, how um, embedded Korea is in international, how deeply embedded it is in international capitalist economy. So uh, this is where I see the roots of this uh, doctor, uh, doctor movement. Uh, and I'm arguing that basically in the way the shifting of focus uh, to doctor uh, rather than to democratization and unification as it was in the original, uh, in the original uh, democratization movement enables its recreation, the recreation of this uh, discourse, of this narrative of Korean uh, national identity by again deferring uh, its uh, uh, deferring its um, final 
uh, creation to to certain to to the future, uh, but also by getting rid of uh, getting rid of this uh, various Marxist elements uh, in the discourse. So, for example, the people elites uh, dichotomy uh, remains the same uh, very much in the discourse. Again. Uh, the protect doctor movement emphasizes the people and their connection to the doctor. Doctor is seen now as the embodiment of the Korean nation. So basically, doctor equals Korean nation. Uh, doctor is the symbol of national subjectivity. Uh, people, elites, elites, domestic elites conspire with Japan. Uh, they uh, they about to give up uh, doctor to, to the Japanese. So this dichotomy is maintained. But again, Marxism, all this kind of uh, Marxist elements that uh, talked about the economy, economic exploitation, etc., disappear here. Uh, and democratization and oppression, uh, they are replaced uh, with territorial consciousness of the people. Uh, and the kind of the corruption and flunkyism of the elites. And they argue that if the people basically now, instead of being of, of democracy, uh, of democratization, uh, basically the narrative argues that uh, getting rid of, uh, so the, for the people uh, to get rid of the corrupt elites, uh, but also to gain proper territorial consciousness, get rid of of the uh, this, uh, the corrupt elites. This is the key to national liberation. So this is the argument I'm making here, basically showing these parallels between the two uh, the two discourses and trying to show that this uh, the discourse about doctor was very much a recreation of uh, of the democratization uh, movement uh, narrative about uh, about Korea's uh, national identity. Yeah, and I thought the story is, you know, the story of the way that those uh, energies get transferred over uh, from democratization to uh, protect Dokdo uh, is a really fascinating one. Um, and it was something that I, you know, uh, I was entirely unaware of until I until I read the book. Um, and actually, there was uh, something in chapter four uh, also, which is uh, Japan's, or sorry, excuse me, Taiwan's protected Yaotai movement uh, that I was equally unaware of, um, which is precisely that it was Taiwan's protected Yaotai movement. Uh, so, so the, the final chapter is engaging with this dispute over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands, and I think a lot of people like myself probably associate this issue most closely with the recent public clashes between Japan and the PRC. Um, but your chapter points out that the whole protect the Diaoyutai movement originates in the politics of Taiwan um, and its sort of complex web of relationships, uh, Cold War relationships with the PRC, the US and Japan. Uh, so in this chapter, you write that the islands became uh, a focal point for questions about the legitimacy of both the nationalist and the communist governments, and then reemerge in post-democratized Taiwan, in democratized Taiwan, uh, where, as you put it, the framing of the dispute as a symbol of humiliation suffered by the Chinese nation at the hands of Japanese imperialists had remained intact. However, in the context, uh, in this new context, the implications of this national identity, entrepreneurship, and political role of the narrative uh, espoused by the activists changed significantly. So can you tell us sort of what the dispute has meant for these various parties and how it changed over time? Um, and especially uh, if there are you know, parallels or, or specific contrasts that you'd like to bring out with the other chapters. 
Uh, yes, I think the Baudia movement is quite unique uh, in, in among all of the case studies as I, I examine in my book for a variety of reasons. Uh, so first of all, you're absolutely right. Today, the importance of, of the disputes or the dispute is mostly between Japan and China, PRC. Uh, Taiwan plays uh, a certain role, but... Uh, marginal role in the dispute today uh, but the disputes uh, again it originates uh, not the dispute sorry but uh, the uh, the movement so this prote- the Bao Diao the protect the Diao Yutai movement originated in Taiwan or to be more precise and this is another unique I think characteristic of this movement are uh, Taiwanese students in the United States um, Taiwanese students in the United States so um uh, the, um, and another, I think, uh, uh, interesting point uh, about this dispute uh, is that I, in all of the three cases that I examined uh, that we just talked about before, so the Northern Territories, Takeshima in Japan, and Doctor in Korea, uh, these uh, narratives, narratives about these islands, they become quite central uh, to national identity uh, discourses uh, in the two countries. Uh, in the case of uh, Bao Diao, uh, the uh, the narrative uh, created by the um, by the activists back in the 1970s and the dispute itself uh, is rather marginal in today's uh, Taiwanese uh, Taiwan's um, uh, discourse on national identity. So there are there's, uh, there's certain uh, characteristics here that certain uh, quite a few points that make this uh, dispute quite unique. Uh, so why, what happened in 1970? Uh, and uh, the, the, ori- the initial movement was quite uh, quite short-lived, uh, 1970 to 1974, but uh, most of the groups ceased to exist uh, by 72 already. Um, Basically, we're talking about we're talking about islands that were uh, administered. Uh, so the Diaoyudu Islands were administered by uh, the United States as part of Okinawa Prefecture uh, uh, after World War II. Uh, and the two quite important develop- developments that trigger uh, the movement. One is this ECAFER. This is this is basically United Nations commissioned uh, study uh, in 1968 uh, that. Uh, that uh, find some oil, or the, basically they say that there's a possibility of oil reserves in waters uh, surrounding the islands. And in 1969, in 1969, uh, we uh, basically uh, Nixon, uh, President Nixon, and Sato, uh, Prime Minister Sato of Japan, uh, they issue a declaration. Sato Isaku, they issue a declaration in which. Uh, basically, the United States promises the return of Okinawa uh, with uh, with the um, uh, with the, uh, the the disputed well, with the island uh, as part of Okinawa Prefecture. Obviously, return them all to Japan. So uh, these are two uh, two immediate triggers. Uh, but again, so the movement uh, the movement uh, is initiated uh, by students by Taiwanese students in the United States across the United, university students in the United States who establish uh, various uh, protect the Diaoyu Diaoyu uh, Tai action committees in different universities, um, and. Um, 
so why the United States uh, and why, what exactly, what are the critical junctures uh, that we're talking about here that trigger this movement? So obviously the immediate triggers are this, this, this study and the Nixon-Sato declaration. But I'm trying to dig a bit deeper here. So one, uh, obviously very important, I think, uh, critical juncture is nothing to do with Taiwan, actually, or Japan or China, is the so-called uh, long 1960s in the United States. So there's basically there's a decade of activism, of campus activism in the United States, uh, all those anti-war movements, uh, civil rights movements, uh, and this, uh, these movements, these groups definitely influence the Taiwanese students. They're coming from dictatorial Taiwan, something that you know, uh, they couldn't have imagined uh, to engage in this kind of activism. So this, this is something that I think uh, plays quite an important role in, in um, igniting this activism. But another uh, uh, important uh, critical juncture here, I think, uh, is uh, basically, again, the crisis in Taiwan's, well, at that time, it's basically China, Chinese national identity on Taiwan. So when Chiang Kai-shek, when he escapes to Taiwan, basically, he uh, his vision of Taiwan is... Uh, uh, is um, uh, temporary uh, shelter before he recaptures, uh, before he gets to return and recaptures the mainland. Uh, his position uh, is that the KMT, the Guomindang, are the only and the sole legitimate government of the whole of China. And he embarks on this process of signification of Taiwan. So Taiwan basically was a Japanese colony for 50 years uh, with all that uh, uh, comes out of it. Um, language, uh, culture, uh, etc. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, Chiang Kai-shek and KMT they engage in this re-signification of uh, of Taiwan. So Mandarin is imposed as the national language. Uh, streets are renamed uh, after places in on mainland. Uh, maps that 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 uh, that uh, students and kids uh, see at school they're basically maps of the whole uh, whole of China. Um, and uh, if we think about the generation of those students, uh, the students that, uh, well, university students in early 1970s, so basically these, I guess, are people about 18, 19, 20 years old. So this is the first generation of Taiwanese, or of uh, most of them are of mainland descent, so most of them they are from, uh, because... These are quite the elites. Uh, these are uh, children of people who escaped from mainland together with the KMT after the defeat by the communists. So this is the first generation of people who were brought up, basically, they were brought up on Taiwan, but they were brought up as Chinese, basically. They saw that, you know, that they believed that uh, Taiwan is the legitimate China, uh, the only China, that uh, the uh, escape to Taiwan is only temporary. Uh, and they learn to imagine their nation as basically standing for the whole of China. Um, and uh, this generation, this this is the generation, basically the first generation has been socialized into this kind of identity. 
Um, and this myth, this this kind of the 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 myth or this identity, has been sustained very much by the politics of Cold, uh, the Cold War politics. And what I mean uh, by politics of Cold War here is basically the fact that Taiwan or the uh, ROC Republic of China uh, has occupied uh, China's seat on the United Nations. It represented China. Uh, in all the uh, international organizations. So basically, this mythology, this myth of Taiwan uh, as uh, Republic of China as being the only China, the real China, uh, has, uh, has been maintained. And as a result of, uh, I mean, all these developments are obviously related to each other. So the, uh, uh, the uh, Sato-Nixon uh, declaration and uh, uh, at the same time, what's happening in late 1960s, early 1970s, is this rapprochement between the United States in mainland China, PRC, the communist China. So uh, what we see is the beginning of the collapse of this mythology in early 1970s, uh, of this idea that Taiwan is, uh, ROC Republic of China, is the only China, the only legitimate China. Um, Taiwan is being kicked out of the United Nations. So uh, my argument is that this Bao Diao movement was very much a response to this crisis, to this uh, crisis of, 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 of Chinese national identity by Taiwanese students. And um, is it result? So the different different groups, there were left-leaning groups, centrist groups, right-leaning groups in the Bao Diao movement, uh, but uh, I guess for the for those and these were the majority, the left leaning ones. Basically, what they did is, well, they criticized uh, the KMT, the uh, ROC, in its response. They criticized American imperialism. Uh, they criticized uh, Japan, Japan's renewed uh, imperialism. Uh, but what they did is basically they replaced Taiwan ROC with PRC, with the People's Republic of China, in the imagery of what China is. And this is basically there was to a certain way um, a way for them uh, to overcome this uh, this identity crisis uh, this all has changed so this movement is, 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 as I mentioned already basically has died out in 19 some of the students returned some of the students uh, Taiwanese students moved to the mainland China some of them uh, stayed in the United States because they couldn't get back because they were persecuted by the uh, by the KMT uh, but uh, this whole dynamic uh, has changed in um, in 1990s, when uh, and today there are quite a few, uh, well, pretty small groups uh, in Taiwan. Uh, basically, uh, basically uh, the the issue has become uh, very much. Uh, and, in, and 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 the groups that advocate uh, this uh, Bao Diao protection of the Tai in Taiwan, they've became uh, actors in cross-strait politics. So basically, in relations between Taiwan and China. Now, so uh, the few groups that exist there, uh, basically, they use this issue to advocate the unity, the political and the cultural and the ethnic unity uh, between People's uh, Republic and Taiwan. Uh, obviously, most of them, not all, with some exceptions, but most of these groups are pro-unification. Uh, uh, between Taiwan and the PRC. But uh, the thing here is that Taiwan's identity has developed a national identity into a completely different direction. So if we look at public opinion polls, uh, most Taiwanese identify themselves as Chinese culturally. 
But politically, they see Taiwan, they see themselves as very different from the PRC. And the PRC has become, for obvious reasons, or is, uh, has been probably, uh, the main other uh, through which their political identity uh, is constructed. So, uh, obviously, in this context, uh, these groups that advocate the political, not only the cultural, but also the political unity of uh, Taiwan and the and, and the PRC, they obviously do not have much popular appeal. And therefore, uh, and obviously, the political elites and most of the parties, even the KMT today, uh, they're very cautious. I mean, they don't advocate um, unification. Uh, so, um, obviously, uh, which if it is to happen, it would have to happen on PRC terms very much. Um, so, uh, in this context, this, uh, uh, this, uh, the whole Baodiao has very much lost its appeal. Uh, and today it's very, it's mostly a minority, uh, very small groups that engage, uh, in this activism and they share these ideas. So, uh, quite different to the other cases, uh, but, uh, obviously, uh, the, well, the politics and the the other the broader identity narratives, I guess, have shaped um, uh, the result of um, of this uh, movements and the constructs in all of the cases. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting how you're able to trace out not only you know a very different sort of origin story, but also a, an entirely different trajectory um, for the at least the Taiwan side of this. Uh, you know, row over the Senkaku Diaoyu Islands. Um, so I want to, uh, before before I let you go here, I want to, I'm very curious about what it is that you're up to these days in your research now that this is out or uh, what you have planned for the future. Uh, I think like everybody these days, I'm thinking mostly about, uh, or oh, my mind is occupied by the ongoing corona pandemic. Uh, but the project that I've started working on uh, recently, uh, well, uh, probably uh, uh, before this, uh, before the pandemic, uh, uh, is on Japan-Korea relations. So I, I'm interested in looking into the history of bilateral relations, post-war relations. I noticed that there's not much. I mean, there's quite a lot of works on. Uh, the various issues on the comfort women, obviously, on the um, well security relations between two countries, but mostly historical memory-related issues. And they tend to focus on the 1990s onward, which it is when these issues became uh, quite important in the surface-topped in bilateral relations. Uh, but there are very few works that, that look at uh, Japan-Korea relations in the post-war year more broadly, uh, starting from, obviously, 1950s onwards. So this is my uh, next uh, projects, and I will try to use maybe some of the terms and the uh, methodology I used in this book uh, to to focus more broadly on, uh, more narrowly at the same time, uh, on mm -hmm. Japan-Korea relations uh, in the post-war uh, post uh, period. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And I, I think that's, uh, I'll be looking forward to, to getting that sort of longer perspective, um, you know, not just focusing on the 90s to the present. Um, and hopefully, uh, if you uh, have a book coming out about that uh, in a couple of years down the road, uh, we'll be able to have you back on the podcast. Uh, but for now, I just wanted to thank you so much for being generous with your time today uh, and joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much, Nathan. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>